Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode of the Single Tracks Podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health conscious people like you get special life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com slash singletracks to support the show and learn more. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Aaron and I are going to explain the entire mountain bike industry to you. Well, maybe not the whole thing, but a lot of people wonder if there's like a big, fat corporate underbelly to the mountain bike industry. And a lot of times you'll hear too people accusing companies of being profit hungry and, you know, really playing mountain bikers for fools by introducing new standards and more expensive bikes. And so we're going to explore that idea a little bit and offer our own experiences and perspectives on it. That's right. Get out your tinfoil hats. Yes. So I'd like to start off the discussion by talking about sort of the roots of the mountain bike industry and how it got started. You know, a lot, unlike a lot of other industries, the mountain bike industry kind of got started as a hobby, right? It was uh, not really rooted in capitalism necessarily. Yeah, not really to begin with. It was a bunch of, I mean, for lack of a better term, I guess, stoners that were out in California. Yeah, and hippies. Hippies. Dirty, dirty hippies <laughs> out uh, riding their bikes down hills and wanting to go fast. And so they were, you know, mountain bikes didn't even really exist. So they were kind of just building them around, building them with whatever was around at the time, which happened to be 26-inch wheels. That was the biggest tires you could get at the time. Otherwise, you had, you know, 700C road wheels, and that's... Basically, the story of how mountain biking started and how we just ended up with the 26-inch as the standard mountain bike wheel. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too. When you hear the story, it's kind of a who's who of the industry today. A lot of these guys are still around. But, you know, in the beginning, Joe Breeze built one of the first custom mountain bike frames, and he then showed it to his buddy, Tom Ritchie, uh, who decided to build one of those for himself. And then a guy named Gary Fisher heard about what Richie was doing and said, hey, can you make one of those for me too? And so Tom Richie made a second mountain bike. And as soon as Gary Fisher saw it, he was like, hey, I could, I could sell these. And so he started selling mountain bikes. And uh, really that was the first, you know, sort of professional mountain bike company as called Richie Mountain Bike, or also I think they were just called Mountain Bike for a little while too. Yeah. So it really was not, you know, nobody was thinking they're going to get rich off of this thing. They were just doing what they loved and just kind of messing around and mountain bikes were born. Another company that's out there today too, that a lot of people, I don't know, give it a bad reputation, uh, maybe deserved or, or not deserved, but specialized bikes. Um, they didn't start out as a mountain bike company per se, but obviously they sell a lot of mountain bikes today. Um, but that company was created by Mike Sinyard, who in 1974, he sold his VW bus. How hippie is that? And <laughs> uh, used the money to finance a, a bike trip across Europe. And while he was over there, he saw you know these cool Italian bikes and components and got the idea that he could sell some of those in the US. So he brought some, some parts back and started specialized bike company. So again, you know, the roots of the industry are not necessarily in capitalism. This isn't like major corporations are like, we, we need a mountain bike division, you know, although that, that would come later. But a lot of the companies like Specialized and Richie and, you know, even Trek with Gary Fisher now kind of got their beginnings as, as more of a hobby than as a business. I think this also gives a lot of undertones into the mountain bike industry where we are like, as consumers, we're really skeptical about corporate overreach. You know, we have this sort of rebel beginning or DIY ethos, you know, within the sport. And so we're kind of skeptical or wary of like what big companies are going to do. You know, you see this even with trail access where, you know, mountain biking began as a sort of renegade thing that people are trying to stop us from doing. And so, you know, we're kind of rebels at heart. Even if we just joined the sport recently, that's something though that's like part of the culture. And then also, I always like to point out, you know, there are 
plenty of billionaires in like technology and finance and real estate, but I don't know of any mountain bike billionaires that are around. So it seems like maybe nobody's getting super rich off of this, but we can talk more about that. So let's talk about the industry as a whole, Aaron. Uh, how big is the bike industry in the U.S.? Uh, according to the National Bicycle, Bicycle Dealers Association, the U.S. cycling market is about $6 billion a year. And it's been about that size since 2003 with a, not a whole lot of change, You know, maybe varying between 5.8 to $6.3 billion. So it hasn't really been growing. I know... You know, we've talked a lot about in different articles that we've read that the mountain biking is doing awesome right now, but as a whole, cycling uh, struggles. You know, ridership tends to be down. Local bike shops are closing every day, so the industry is stable, but it's not growing like a lot of other things are. And out of that six billion dollar a year market, about twenty five percent is mountain bikes. So that's about a billion and a half dollars a year in spent on mountain biking in the U.S. Yeah, that's not not a huge number in the grand scheme of things, and it's certainly not, you know, being taken up by any one company. I wanted to grab a stat on how many mountain bike brands there are out there right now, but I mean, a lot. Yeah, it's safe to say there are hundreds. You know, you you might think, oh, there's only like you know six or something, but most of us could sit down and if we started writing down all the bike mountain bike brands specifically that we know of, you know, you fill a lot of sheets of paper. So. Yeah, definitely a big industry and a lot of different people control tiny parts of that pie. So one of the things, though, that, that people will point to is they'll say bikes are really expensive. So somebody's got to be making money off of this. And, you know, they, they can't be that expensive. There must be just a huge profit margin built into this. And we we talked about this in the $10,000 bike episode a while back. That was probably a year ago or more. But Aaron, talk about some of the costs involved in mountain bikes and getting a mountain bike into a rider's hand. Yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of costs and costs that people don't maybe think of right off the bat. They think you just need to pay for it to get built, right? And then that's it. And then it shows up in the shop. But it's not that simple. You have R&D costs, obviously. You have the cost of production, so the raw materials, the labor uh, you got to ship that bike because I'm guessing that you don't live right next door to a bike factory. So that bike's got to get to you some way. Uh, and then you have to market the bike. You know, the bigger you are, the more control you have over some of these costs, at least to an extent. That's why you'll see more price points and generally lower prices from the biggest brands. They've got more purchasing power so they can negotiate better prices on things like forks and drivetrains, all the other stuff that they don't make themselves they can get a better deal on since they're buying larger quantities than a smaller brand. And that's, you know, that's part of the reason that a, a Yeti is going to cost more than a similarly spec giant bike. And, you know, with traditional bike shops, there has to be some markup so they can make money and keep their doors open. You know, I, you know for better or worse, we have middlemen in just about everything that we do. And that's just how the supply chain works in the world economy today. Um, you know, and, Hopefully, the, the, you know, the idea behind a supply chain is each step someone is adding value to the end consumer along the way. Otherwise, you cut that person out. So, yeah, I, you know, when you see consumer direct brands, you know, they offer a lot of bike for the money. It's because they're cutting the bike shop out of that transaction. So they're, a lot of the normal costs that other bike companies would incur, they're getting to keep that money, essentially, and pass some of that discount along to you. And, you know, of course, people will just say, oh, let's Let's cut out the, the you know the, the marketing and the advertising and the sponsorship budgets, right? Like if we do that, bikes will be cheaper. True, you could do that, but then uh, there'd be no racing, which would bum some people out, myself included. I like racing; I really enjoy it. Lots of other people do as well. And also, how would you know about a bike if the company isn't getting the word out? You know, it's something we see all the time. If we review a bike from a, a smaller brand that no one's heard of, people are like really skeptical about the bike you know so it's this kind of double-edged sword people you know people need to know about these things and you have to spend this money to build your brand so people have confidence in that brand but that costs money so if you you know if you don't spend the money to do that people don't know your brand they're not going to have confidence in it and they're not going to want to buy your product yeah and like you said too i want to go back to the you know traditional versus consumer direct model you know i think a lot of people 
maybe think that that you can save a lot more money with that than you can. But that again, that was just one of the costs is that dealer's markup. You know, there's still all the you look at like YT. You know, they're still spending money on sponsorships and advertising and right. uh, R and D and and then when you go back to just looking at the cost of building a bike, everybody's getting paid along the way. You know, starting with the guy who digs up the ore to make the, you know, aluminum bike, <laughs> right? Like you pay for that and then you pay a different guy who's going to refine it. And then a different guy's got to get his cut for shaping the tubes. And then, you know, the guy who welds it together gets a cut. And like, yeah, I mean, that stuff adds up pretty quick because the bike, it's not a simple product at all. You know, it has many, many steps that are involved in making it and everybody along the way deserves to get paid. So that's why bikes are expensive they cost money right exactly and you know part of it is is consumers as well too right like you know i know a lot of companies in order to help keep their bike prices down they'll spec house brand components you know and they'll so so, you know if you get a giant it's got a giant seat post and a giant saddle and a giant handlebar on it and that does a lot towards keeping the cost down but then a lot of people will then ding that bike because it doesn't have an envy bar on it or whatever, you know, and it's, so it's, it's again, it's kind of a, a lose, lose situation for the brand because if they spec their own components, then people are like, Oh, well, the components are junk, which is kind of a weird position to have, honestly, because if you're buying a frame from a company and you have confidence in that frame, but then you think, you know, their stem is garbage or their bar is garbage that's kind of that's that doesn't make sense you know if, if you trust them to make the most important part of the bicycle why wouldn't you and you know trust them to make the the stem so yeah so that's a tough position for brands yeah definitely i mean i think that and that's what you are paying for you know you can go you can go the bikes direct route too where there isn't you know really a, as much of a brand name behind it but the reason you pay more for a brand is not just because you're an idiot and you know you're you're giving them more profit what you're paying for is, you know, the assurance, like, like you said, that it's a good product and that somebody stands behind it and, uh, all those good things. So yeah, brands definitely have value. Okay. So what about margins? Uh, that, that's tells the real story, right? About whether someone is getting rich or getting insane amounts of profit out of selling a bike, right? So what, what are the margins like on a bike? It's hard to find those numbers, you know, at the manufacturer level, but for the the bike dealer for the your local bike shop, the average gross margin on a bike is about 35%. And that number actually gets tends to get lower as the bike gets more expensive because all those components on that higher end bike cost more, so there's less wiggle room there. So, yeah, you know, 35% it sounds like a lot of money, but then you've got to think of how many bikes you're selling you know, each day or week or whatever and all the other costs that go into running a shop. Like you have rent and you have insurance and you know, you've got utilities and you've got staff to pay for. You've got all that good stuff. So, yeah, bike shops aren't really uh, raking in the dough either. You can make money at it if you know what you're doing and you, you, know, you control your expenses as much as possible. And mostly it's about building a good community around your shop. That's probably the most important thing and having customers that want to come in. But yeah, no one's really like just rolling in the dough from selling bikes, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the TV show Shark Tank. That's where I learn everything that I know about business. Just kidding. But uh, that show is interesting because anytime someone comes on with a product and their margin or, you know, they're like, ultimate markup on it is less than like four times what they, it costs them to make it. You know, they just get laughed out of there. Like that's not even a business. Like, <laughs> like if you're selling a thing for a hundred dollars and it costs you, you know, 40 to make it, they would laugh you out and be like, that's not a business. You're going to go, you're going to go bankrupt doing that. They're like, you need to be able to make that for like 20 bucks. And then maybe you have a business, but bike industry, you know, it's the margins are much thinner on products. And I mean, if you look at the history of a lot of these companies too, you know, they, they come and go all the time. Companies seem to be going bankrupt all over the place and then somebody buys them out and then they go bankrupt again. You know, I mean, it's, it's very thin margins for sure. Okay. So I want to get into the conspiracy theory stuff that we talked about at the beginning here. You know, we hear here and we read a lot of comments online from people that are 
skeptical about bike brands for various reasons. So I want to go through some of those myths about the bike industry and see if we can kind of explain them a little bit better. Okay, so the first one I want to talk about is the idea that new standards are only devised to sell more or more expensive products. Uh, we've seen this especially with like wheel sizes. You know, that was the big one that everybody knows about and everybody's followed the history of that. Is that a, is that a real thing or companies just inventing stuff to sell more products, do you think? This is this is kind of a tough one. Uh, there's probably a kernel of truth in there. Um, obviously, companies want to sell more stuff and they want to have new stuff to sell. And this, again, goes back to kind of what I was talking about earlier where the brands are in a little bit of a tough position because consumers, they want something new, right? Like if you if you roll out a bike, a 2018 bike, and it looks just like your 2017 bike, but it has a different paint job on it, people are going to call BS and be like, what is the same bikes as last year? That's lame. They didn't do anything. But then if you just then that kind of forces these bike companies' hands to to change something about the bike and then to change it means it's gonna cost, you know, more money. So you know one one of the things we hear about a lot is uh you know I could buy a, a motorcycle for that much money for what a bike costs. And that's true. And you know what? If you want to buy a motorcycle, cool, go buy a motorcycle. Motorcycles <laughs> are awesome. Like go go ride a motorcycle. Yeah, I'm not here to tell you how to spend your money or what your hobby should be. But part of the reason the prices are comparable, well, and also you got to think about what you're comparing. I mean, the nicest bike you can buy, let's say like an eight or $10,000 bike, like, yeah, you might be able to get a, a motorcycle for that much money, but you know, that's not going to be the absolute nice. It's going to be a really nice motorcycle. Don't get me wrong, but it's not going to be like a pro level. You know, this isn't going to be the same bike that people are out winning, you know, supercross races on. Yeah, you could go the other way too, right? You could you could drop eight to ten thousand dollars in the strip club one night, right? So money is, yeah, it's relative. You could either blow it on something really stupid, or you know, you could spend it on a bike. True. Yeah, I mean, I call that Thursday night, but hey, <laughs> it's just how I roll. But you know, I, I think I I genuinely believe that bike companies are trying to improve bikes when they when they change things. There are a couple underlying issues here that piss people off and I totally get it. One being the pace of change, especially over the past few years, you know, we keep seeing things change seemingly every 6 months, but you, you know, nobody wants to buy a bike that's instantaneously obsolete. I get that. You know, you're dropping $5,000 on a bike, you're going to be bummed when you hear that next version of that bike is 20% stiffer or 5% lighter or whatever. What I would say to these people, though, is just buy the bike that you like now. There's always going to be something newer and better around the corner. That's just life. It's the same with any product, just about every product. You know, Look at a smartphone, for instance. Every year, there's a new version that promises to be life-changingly better, but is it? You know, try, you Just try not to get caught up in that consumerism aspect of mountain biking. Just ride your bike and you know, maybe try to avoid a bike with tons of proprietary parts on it. Probably the other main issue here is that many of the changes, they seem really incremental and minor, but they require you to change something major. Like they require a whole new wheel set or a new fork or a new frame or something like that. It seems like the industry is you know deliberately taking half or maybe even quarter steps forward. You know, you look at suspension fork through axles, for example. You know, forever we had quick release axles and that seemed fine and then we had either quick release axles or you had 20 millimeter through axles for big burly you know trail forks downhill forks that sort of thing and then companies kind of split the difference and they came out with 15 millimeter through axles for xc and trail forks but now we have boost space forks with 15 millimeter through axles and part of the reasoning for the wider spacing was to make the forks stiffer so why don't we just stick with 20 millimeter axles in the first place and just figure out a way to make a lighter weight version for cross country and trail. So yeah, I, I get that. I get why that's really annoying to people, you know, but um, new standards in parts are, they're definitely annoying, but you know, hopefully we can all just agree that bikes are objectively better than they were just a few years ago. Are they more fun? You know, that's certainly debatable, but they're stiffer, they're stronger, they're more capable and I think, you know, if there's more coordination between brands when developing new standards, that would go a long way towards like alleviating some 
some of the concerns and frustration for consumers, but unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, and to me, that's just evidence that you know there isn't some big conspiracy out there where you know all the companies are getting together and being like, "Haha, like let's come up with something else we can do and we can all profit from it." You know, you see these companies like one company will introduce one standard, another company will have something that's a little bit different, and that's why in the early days we'll see you know three or four different axle standards or widths or whatever and then you know over time we'll kind of settle on one but uh, these companies they're all kind of doing their own thing and trying to trying to make bikes better really and it's a big risk to them too to come up with a standard that nobody adopts that's just them and they've wasted a lot of money on design and tooling and all that you know only to see their standard not work out so it's definitely capitalism at work and you know free markets and that can be messy sometimes for sure. And one more thing I would just add is that generally these, you know, some of these things seem to come and go, but in actuality they don't. Unless you're getting a bike again with some really proprietary random parts on it, you know, maybe they'll only be spares will only be available for a year or two, but I mean things like tires, you know, once but you know, you're always going to be able to find 26-inch tires. Okay, maybe they're not going to be Maybe the tire companies are going to come out with their latest tread patterns in 26 inch, but you can still find them. You know, you can still find 26 inch forks. Maybe that's getting a little bit harder. So maybe, maybe we shouldn't talk too much about 26 inch, but you know, it's been several years of moving away from that, you know, and, and, you know, hopefully, and, you know, every product has a lifespan. And when you are at the end of that product's lifespan, then you get, you know, you get whatever the, the next thing is. And, you know, you're going to be set for a few years. Like you'll be able to find parts for that bike for, for the serviceable life of that bike in general. Yeah. And again, with the free markets too, you know, people will come up with ways to adapt older bikes and stuff, right? So if you've got like an older fork, but you've got a bike that's got a tapered head tube on it, you know, you can find headsets and adapters that different companies make to make that work. You know, again, it's capitalism. Like if there are a lot of people with the same problem, some company is going to find a way to fix it and they're going to make some money off of that. So Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you look at a, a brand like Problem Solvers. I mean, just look at their name. That's <laughs> their their whole thing. They exist to make different little trinkets and widgets and doodads that make things that weren't once compatible compatible. Another good example is, you know, a company like Wolftooth or any of the other Companies that popped started popping up when we saw um, eleven speed drivetrains first introduced. All of a sudden, there were all these companies producing larger cogs that you could make a hack with your ten speed drivetrain, and now you could get a forty two tooth, you know, large cog on your on your ten speed drivetrain, so you that, you know you wouldn't have to upgrade. So that yeah, again, like when these things arise, it does present opportunities for other companies to get into the market. Absolutely. Okay, another thing that we hear a lot, especially uh, us personally here at Single Tracks, is that bike companies pay to get their products or their opinions into various media outlets. You know, we get accused of this pretty much no matter what we write or say. Somebody, yep. <laughs> somebody on some side is going to say, "Oh, you guys are just saying that because you know some company paid you to say that." So, how does that actually work, Aaron? Do we do we get paid for everything that we write, dude. Do we ever? Boy, let me tell you what. Jeff and I are actually sitting on piles of cash right now just because we don't have time to take it to the bank. That's <laughs> just how it rolls. Yeah, just like Jeff said, I mean, just about everything we post to Facebook gets comments about how we're just shills for whatever company is in the review. This is especially true when we do any best lists or even articles from our readers' survey, which I think is particularly hilarious and also really frustrating. Because, you know, generally it, it's a good word of advice is just not to read the comments, but sometimes you do and you end up angry. But most of these people that comment on Facebook, they didn't even read the article and it's clear from their comment. Or um, even the title. Or the title is the, usually oh, reader's choice. Yeah, readers. This is, this is our, we surveyed our readers and this is what they said. And people say, oh, somebody just paid you to put that in. But maybe they paid all our readers. Maybe yeah, are they every readers? reader got like 10 bucks and then they all voted for somebody. <laughs> Well, our readers should send some of us that money. Yes. I think a big part of it is, uh, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I think more than anything, people just want validation for whatever bike or product is that they've purchased. So when you know X bike that they own doesn't make a list you know, that they think it should be on, they get upset by it. 
Yeah, definitely. I think too, we're at kind of a low in terms of trust of media outlets and just, just anything that you see online. Anyway, most people are skeptical. Fake news. Right. They're going to think, and you know, I mean, we aren't a news outlet at all. Like we, we're not professional journalists. We, none of us went to school. Greg, I think Greg kind of went to school for that. He's an English degree. English, but not journalism. I think he took some classes, but Anyway, you know, we're not the New York Times, but at the same time, you know, we are doing our best to be honest and, you know, unbiased. And the way we're set up here, too, I don't know if we've ever shared this, but, you know, we try to keep our editorial side separate from our advertising side. So there's only three of us, but we're still able to keep that pretty separate. So just to be clear, we don't take money for posts. Uh, especially reviews and top 10 lists and things like that. Um, occasionally we do uh, run what we call it sponsored stories, and we make that very clear uh, when that is. But generally those are not product-related anyway. You know, These are more like it might be travel pieces or things like that. Yeah, but, destinations, stuff yeah. like that. But. And, and again, we, we want to make it absolutely clear. We never want to hide that. And our advertisers don't want us to hide that either. It's interesting that sometimes when we will – have a conversation with an advertiser about doing something like that. They'll say, Ooh, you know, we, we, we don't really feel comfortable with that because they don't, they don't want to get caught in that lie. Right. They don't want to get caught in the lie of like paying to have something written or whatever. And so, and it's in all of our interests to make that very clear when that happens. Um, and we wish we could do more of it, but you know, there just isn't, there just isn't a lot of money in it, honestly. So one of the other complaints that's sort of related to that is that people tend to think that we only review like really high end bikes because I don't know why they think that is, but they don't like it. They want us to review the less expensive bikes. So how does that work, Aaron? Yeah. Generally, you know, companies do tend to send the higher end versions of the bikes or products that they offer for review. Uh, we often, or we, you know, some certainly sometimes request a certain build of a bike, but that doesn't mean the uh, the company is always going to send that particular build to us. Obviously, you know, from their perspective, they want their product to be shown in the best light possible, so they're going to send the nicest, lightest version. You know, for instance, if they send an entry level bike, we might mention that it's heavy. We might mention its weight in a seemingly negative context because, generally speaking, you know, the less expensive components are heavier than the more expensive components. And that's not, you know, the brand isn't going to like that for obvious reasons. We do often request, you know, the mid tier builds, and sometimes we get them, sometimes we don't. But uh, think about car companies as an analog for this. You know, when they send a car out to review it, are they going to send the no frills base model? No. (laughs) You know, they're going to, they're going to send the one that's loaded out with options. I mean, even if we're talking about, a car and driver reviewing a Camry here. They're not going to send the, I don't know, the SE model with like manual windows and, you know, just an AM FM radio and no navigation and cloth interior. They're not going to send that one. They're going to send the one with leather and heated seats and a moonroof and, you know, a neck massager and whatever else. But, you know, I think what most people forget is that uh, a lot of companies, especially the big ones, they have a ton of different price points on their bikes. And you know this goes the same for a lot of component companies as well. Um, you know, like Raceface has carbon bars, but you know what? They make aluminum bars that are have the same exact specs in terms of the rise and the sweep and everything that you know you may like about the bar, but it's available in aluminum, so it's going to cost less. And there's not going to be a huge variance in the performance when we're talking about bikes. You know, there's not going to be a huge variance in performance from one level to the next. It's more about weight. It's about the adjustability of the components, you know, particularly suspension. Like take the specialized Epic, for instance. You know, at the high end, there's a ten thousand dollar specialized Epic with Shimano DI2 drivetrain, uh, you know, full carbon, carbon everything, carbon wheels, carbon stem bar, whatever. Everything's carbon on it. But you know, there's also a twenty nine hundred dollar aluminum model of that same bike. It's got the same geometry, it's got the same suspension platform, and it's just as raceable. You know, again. I encourage you people not to get caught up in the consumerism. You know, if you have the money to spend, that's great. Ball out, buy the nicest bike you can get your hands on. But you know, if you're on a limited budget, don't feel bad. You're still you're still going to get a great bike. You know, I think that's that's part of the problem. You know, 
people tend to have unrealistic expectations. You know, all of us, all of us as consumers, we have to take some responsibility. You know, we want the champagne, but we want to pay natty light prices. And that's just, that's just not how it works. That's not realistic. That's not how anything works. You know, if you want the absolute best, you have to pay for it. That's the same with any product. Again, you know, you can go out, you can get, um, you know, I don't even like whatever the cheapest iPhone is, whatever the cheapest Android phone is, you know, you can go get a, a cheap Android phone, outright for like a hundred bucks, you know, or you could get the galaxy, you know, eight, I don't even know what they're on now, whatever it is. And it's going to be like six or $700, you know, and they'll still make calls. They'll still text. They'll still allow you to get on the internet and visit singletracks.com and download our podcast. How do you like that plug? <laughs> they'll still take pictures, but you know, there's the, you know, you're not going to get all is not going to take as nice of pictures. It's not going to be as speedy. It's not going to have you know all those little extra bells and whistles that the nicest phone does. That's just that's just how it works. You know, personally, to tell you guys, you know, I get to ride really fancy bikes and parts all the time, which is obviously a huge part of working in the industry. In quotes, but you know, I, I think it also gives me some perspective as to what it's worth spending extra money on and what it isn't. You know what I buy on my own personal bikes? Whatever's on sale. You know, I'm cheap. <laughs> Like most people in the industry, I'm not, you know, I'm not making a, a killing here. I've got, you know, I got to be realistic. You know, so I buy what's on sale or, you know, I buy stuff that to me represents a really good good value. You know, for instance, I just bought a 11-speed um, Shimano SLX drivetrain for one of my bikes. And you know what that was replacing? A 10-speed SLX drivetrain, you know, because SLX works great. It's super durable. I've crashed on it a ton of times. You know, it works pretty well. It's uh, not the lightest thing, but you know it's inexpensive. I mean, I think I think it was like fifty six dollars for the rear derailleur. Uh, it's full retail, you know. Obviously, you, know, you have XT, you have XTR, all the SRAM components in their various levels. So all that stuff. There's very tight margins in terms of performance between them, and but you know the it's the weight and it's the the cachet, I guess, that you're spending with as you spend more money. You know, some of the things I won't skimp on are are what I feel is more critical to the overall ride. You know, those are things like your suspension, your wheels, and particularly your tires. You know, I'll pay extra for those things and cut corners elsewhere, like I said, in the drivetrain or maybe, you know, aluminum cranks instead of carbon cranks or an aluminum cockpit instead of carbon. Or, you know, like all my bikes are aluminum or steel framed instead of carbon. I'd just, you know, it's another way to save money. So bikes are expensive. But just keep in mind that you don't have to buy the most expensive one. There's tons of other uh, price points out there. Yeah, and this gets back to the discussion we had about margins, too, and how some of the most expensive bikes actually have worse margins. So in a lot of cases, these bike companies, they might prefer that you buy the mid-tier bike, or you know maybe they even have the best margins, depending on the bike and the company. They might have better margins on the least expensive bike. You know, that's... The price itself does not tell you the whole story about where the money is being made. So yeah, that's why we review expensive versions of bikes. It's not necessarily because companies think you're going to buy that one. It's just because that's sort of the most representative or that's the that's the bike that's going to put the whole line in the best light, um, at least in terms of consumers' views of them. Also, I had this thought while we were talking too, you know, it'd be interesting to like survey people in the industry and find out what kind of cars they drive. Number one, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to see a lot of like, you know, Lexus and BMWs and stuff. You know, these are a lot of these people are going to be driving, you know, American cars that are five to 10 years old and they're not definitely not making more, any more money than, you know, most of our listeners are. Um, and then the other thing too, I think it would be interesting to know what bikes people actually ride in the industry. You know, they probably do ride pretty nice bikes, a lot of them. And, but then I guess the follow up question is, did you pay full retail for it? <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. I mean, most, most, uh, everyday consumers, I would argue, probably don't pay full retail for the vast majority of bicycles and parts that they buy. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So up next, we're going to talk about how the bike industry is or is not pushing e-bikes down our throats. But first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, Jeff. What's up, Aaron? 
Did you know that cycling reduces the risk of heart disease by 18% while also lowering blood pressure and improving sleep? I did not know that. But did you know that male cyclists live between three and five years longer than males who don't ride bikes? I did not know that. That's fascinating. It's true. Look it up. I will, as soon as we finish here. So why are we talking about this, Jeff? Well, it turns out there's a new life insurance agency called Health IQ that offers savings to active mountain bikers just like us. It's sort of like those car insurance companies that offer better rates to safe drivers. That's right. Most life insurance agencies are only going to look at things like your BMI and family history without taking into account your healthy lifestyle. But Health IQ does. This allows them to offer exclusive life insurance rates to people leading active lives. So, Jeff, how do you find out if you qualify for a special rate through Health IQ? Well, the first thing is to visit healthiq.com slash singletracks, enter a little bit of basic information, and request a free quote. Health IQ team will then get in touch with you and lead you through the entire process from submitting an application to choosing a policy. That's right. If you're listening to the Single Tracks podcast, chances are you're already leading a pretty healthy lifestyle. So why not save a few bucks that you can put towards that new bike or your next mountain bike vacation? Exactly. Again, go to healthiq.com slash singletracks to find out if you qualify for a special rate on your next life insurance policy. Okay, so one of my favorite complaints or conspiracy theories that we hear is that the bike industry is pushing e-bikes down our throats. They're really pushing them on the market and you know trying to get people to buy them because they just want to make a whole lot of money. Is there any truth in that, Aaron? Oh boy. I think there is. Again, I think there's a kernel of truth in there. Bike companies, they need something new to sell. Again, and e-bikes are that thing for better or many people would argue for worse. Uh, that's currently where we are. I think we've run the gamut of wheel sizes and tire widths and, you know, suspension lengths and all that good stuff. So mountain bikes are so good. You got to look for something else. You got to try to bring. And again, like I said, you know, the market has been pretty much stagnant at this level for, you know, since 2003, you know, you're talking almost 15 years, uh, being around $6 billion a year. They're looking to bring more people in to the market, obviously, because they want to, they do want to make money. I mean, that's how companies stay in business is, uh, they make money and they grow. And if you're not growing, you're not making money and you're probably not going to be in business too much longer. So there is some truth to the fact that the industry is really pushing e-bikes right now. Yeah. I, and I think part of it maybe is that they, they're victims, the bike industry is victims of their own success. You know, a lot of these bikes that are being made today, they are so durable and, and they're parts and things you can put on your bike to upgrade it. And, you know, now we're even seeing these adjustable bikes with like geometry you can adjust and you can throw different wheel sizes on them and stuff. And, you know, the fact is once you buy a bike like that, like you don't need to buy another bike for a while. I'm, I'm looking right now at my giant road bike, carbon fiber bike that I bought 12 years ago, 15 years ago. I don't even know. I haven't bought a road bike since, you know? And so what a lot of us end up doing though, is we don't throw away our old bikes. We just get a different kind of bike, you know, and that maybe that's why we're seeing these different seemingly niche bikes come out. But, you know, one of these people that's like, yeah, it would be kind of cool to have a fat bike. Like I've got a full suspension mountain bike and I got a hardtail and I got a road bike, but I don't have a fat bike and I don't have an electric bike. Um, and so, you know, in some of the cases it's, it's reaching these people who, they want to have a whole shed full of different kinds of bikes and that's yeah, the okay. Whole, They're meeting a demand and yeah. The N plus one crowd, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I would argue that, you know, clearly no one is forcing anybody to buy anything that they don't want. You know, I think if these e-bike companies, you know, they've been doing this for years now and if people weren't buying them, they would lay off. Like they, they wouldn't keep making newer bikes and spending more money on marketing and stuff if it wasn't working, you know? Nobody just goes out and is like, we're going to spend however much it takes to get people to ride these bikes. Like, it may feel like that, but that just doesn't make sense for from a business perspective at all. I'm like a lot of people too, and I definitely think the e-bike marketing stuff is annoying. Like, I'm really getting tired of hearing it. But it's kind of the same way that I'm tired of, you know, seeing AT&T wireless commercials on when I'm watching a football game. Like, 
you see the same commercial over and over and it's somebody standing in this like bright, you know, cell phone store having some stupid conversation. And it's like, yes, I'm aware that there are phones that have data plans. Like I really don't need to hear about this again, but you know, that's just, that's just where we are right now. And eventually I'm sure it'll change. It'll cool off and it'll be something else. But in the meantime, please. Yeah. I don't want to hear these e-bike pitches or ads anymore. Okay, another thing that we hear about, another criticism of bike companies is that they are just so profit-hungry and so driven by profits that they're willing to make their bikes in shady factories overseas, you know, so they can make a little bit more money and, you know, ship the jobs out of the U.S. What's the reality of that? Is is that purely profit-driven or is there sort of another side to that argument? There's definitely another side to it. I think something like 99% of the bikes sold in sold in the US come from Taiwan or China and you can think that's bad or good, but the fact is that they have the skilled labor. They've been doing it for so long. They know how to make bikes there. They know how to make any type of bike. They know how to work with any type of material and that's just that's just what they specialize in, you know? Like we used to have we used to do that with cars in the U.S. You know, we used to be known for you know producing cars in in all sorts of Midwest cities and in Michigan and Ohio and and stuff like that. But and that's basically what Taiwan is. You know, they they have that expertise built in. They've got the workforce. And I, this is another uh, along the same lines, but I guess common misconception is a lot of people don't realize that. Still, it, it amazes me like how many people think that. Santa Cruz still makes frames in the U.S. or like in Santa Cruz, right in, on the oh, beach. Yeah, right. I think they, they do it right there on the beach. Yeah, that's why when you get a Santa Cruz frame, you can hear a little bit of sand rattling around, and it's from <laughs> down by the pier. No, like nobody. If you're getting a frame made in the U.S., it's probably a custom steel or titanium frame from a builder that you know. There's no large manufacturer making bikes in the U.S. For, for better or worse. And a lot of these brands that you think of as U.S. brands because that's where they're located, they're not building bikes here. You know? So sorry sorry to break your heart. Um, but like <laughs> Cannondale, they don't make bikes in the U.S. Yeti, they don't make bikes in the U.S. You know, Trek, they don't make bikes in the U.S. I think they maybe make some of their like highest, highest end carbon bikes in Wisconsin still. But the vast majority of them, no. Uh, you know, again, Ibis, no. Santa Cruz, no. You think of them as American companies, but they're just, you know, it's part. That's the that's the global economy. You know, I mean, Santa Cruz isn't even owned by Americans anymore. It's owned by like a Dutch holding company. So yeah, yeah. Do a little research uh, <laughs> before you go down that rabbit hole. Anyway. Yeah. Well, it does seem shady or sketchy when you look at some of these bikes, you know, again, I'm looking at my giant bike here and it's got the little sticker, you know, down by the bottom bracket. It's got a big USA flag on it. And oh, yeah. you read, you read what it says under that USA flag and it says like designed in the USA. And then below that, no flag in smaller print, it says, you know, manufactured in Taiwan or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all these guys, like, it's great. There are plenty of American jobs here doing design and marketing and, you know, distribution and all that stuff. But the bikes themselves are made overseas where it is less expensive. And now because they've been doing it so long, where the expertise actually lies. And, you know, if you think bikes or mountain bikes are overpriced or too expensive right now, just imagine what they would be like if they were made in the U.S. You know, you would pay you pay even more for them. So consumers over the years have voted with their wallets and said, look, I'm not willing to pay this much for a bike. And bike companies said, okay, the way we can make them cheaper is we'll make them somewhere else. That's how we're going to get our prices down for you. So, Right. Again, it's, it's, down, it's down to the consumers. You know, consumers do bear a certain amount of responsibility here. I, I just thought of one company that does actually make bikes in the U.S. and is of a moderate size is Gorilla Gravity. They make their bikes in Colorado. I think they're right outside Denver. And, you know, we, we've reviewed a lot of their bikes, pretty much all their bikes, and our reviewers have loved them. And the companies, you know, they're, they're great guys. They're awesome to work with. But, you know, inevitably, when we post a review, like multiple people are going to comment, 
oh man, that's so much money for an aluminum frame, you know, because they only make aluminum frames. But it's like that's that's what it costs. Right. You that's know? the problem. That's it. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. So you can either you know, you can choose to support American made, you know, American manufacturing. If that's really important to you, then you're gonna have to pay a premium for that. But you know, if if you don't want to, that's that's fine too. Just you, you have to realize that that's that's the reality of the situation. But as far as bikes being made in some shady factory, and you know, part of the reason you pay more for a brand name is precisely to avoid things like this. If you're buying a four hundred dollar carbon frame off of eBay, which you can do all day long, I'm definitely not recommending it. Um, then yeah, it was probably made in a you know less than reputable factory or a factory with not great working conditions or maybe uh you know not not having a minimal impact on the environment let's say and you know if something goes wrong with that frame do you think you're going to have any level of support no right yeah it all comes back to getting what you pay for okay so we kind of alluded to this earlier but some people seem to have this idea that someone's really getting rich off of these bikes that are being sold and Besides I, us, right, in our stacks of right, we money get, chairs. We definitely get all the money, but um, but yeah, people think that maybe these bike companies are profiting unfairly or they're, they're grossly profiting off of the sale of bikes. Um, and I've done a little bit of research on this over the years. You know, I for a while I was interested in investing and I would buy, you know, two shares of Apple computer and like, you know, one share of AT&T or whatever. And I was into bikes, so I was like, oh, I'm going to buy some bike stocks and see how those do. And, like, there are none. Like, there are no (laughs) publicly traded bike companies. This was, like, 10 or 15 years ago when I was really, you know, interested in doing this. And, like, I think at that time, Cannondale was, like, a penny stock. A penny stock, stock, yeah. Yeah, or they were, like, about to be delisted and, like... These are not these are not like paragons of American industry <laughs> by any means. These are not companies you'd want to like invest your nest egg in and you know retire off of at an early age. Um, most of the companies that are around today are like private equity, which is you know like basically some guys with a lot of money buy the company out and they hope to turn it around and maybe sell it in a few years or take it public. Most of them don't. Most of, most of these do not go public. I can't think of one other than maybe SRAM. I think SRAM went public a few years ago. I could be wrong. But yeah, most of these companies, they stay private. A lot of them are partnerships or a lot of them are even family businesses. You know, They were started by a family. And we talked about some of these early mountain bike pioneers and how they're still in the industry today. You know, they A lot of them have sold off parts of their interests over the years, you know, like Aaron mentioned, you know, even Santa Cruz is owned by a Dutch conglomerate these days. And, but yeah, a lot of the guys are still around and they do own some part of it, but none of them are super rich. All right. So what about this one? Bike parts are designed to fail so that we have to buy more of them. I'm sure, I'm sure almost all of us have thought of that at one point, like this is, this part is so poorly designed, like, of course it broke. They just want me to buy more. Is there is there any truth to that? Is that a viable way to make more money in the bike industry? Not long term. Uh, if you're designing something to fail, it's going to be hard to stay in business if if that thing is breaking all the time. Every company is going to have issues from time to time, and often those problems get blown way out of proportion. There are certain brands you know, still have to fight against uh, perceptions that were formed years and years ago. I won't even bring them up because it'll just help to perpetuate them, but you know who you are. But you know but I will say given the right circumstances, you can break anything. Um I've proven this to myself time and time again. But what's most important is how the company handles that situation. And again, as we talked about just a minute ago, this is where buying from a reputable brand comes in. Take uh, again, we talked about them a few times, but take Santa Cruz for an instance. For instance, you know they're known for having some of the best customer service in the industry because of how responsive they are and how they work with customers to resolve an issue. Um, yeah, so instead of pretending that their products are always perfect, they just try to make things right. And, you know, that's part of the reason they have such a loyal following. And I mean, it's not again, you know, like. They have this good reputation for customer service because their stuff breaks from time to time, right? Like if you didn't, you know, 
if people didn't ever have to deal with your customer service department, that would be awesome. And no one would ever talk about it. But like part of the reason, you know, people will say like Santa Cruz owners, like, Oh, they, you know, they took care of me when I broke my frame or like when, you know, X, Y, and Z happened, like stuff happens. Like mountain biking is hard on, it's hard on your body. It's hard on your components. It's hard on your bike. And, uh, you know, I certainly hope that companies aren't designing things to break you know, obviously, the lighter weight the component, maybe the the less lifespan it's going to have. And also, again, it's up to you as a consumer to be realistic about you know your size, your riding style, your terrain. All those things play into it. You know, I've got a buddy who is always breaking stuff on his bike all the time, but he still insists on like getting the lightest thing possible because he wants a super light bike. <laughs> Which is which is fine, you know. He's he's somehow you know made that deal with himself, and uh, he's okay with that in his own head. So it's all right. But I mean, the guy breaks like cranks, and you know he gets carbon cranks, and then he breaks them. And he gets carbon rims, and then he breaks them. <laughs> um, but he just replaces it with more carbon. And it, after a certain time, it's like, hey man, like maybe you shouldn't have like cross country cranks on your hundred and seventy mil travel nomad. Just. <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> yeah. I, I think too about the, like the rock shocks reverb, you know, everybody I know that's owned that thing has had to send it back for repairs or, you know, get a new one replaced and stuff. But every single person has just gotten like free service on that. Like Greg, I think is it Greg or was that you that sent one back like three or four times and they just keep being like, oh, sorry, our bad. Like, we'll replace that. We'll fix that. Like, how much did that cost them to make that one seat post, you know? So, yeah, the good companies, they're not going to do that because it's going to ruin their reputation. But I do, I definitely do have that thought whenever I have to replace a derailleur hanger. And I'm like, geez, man. I mean, they derailleur hangers literally are designed to fail which is a good thing. And I guess we could talk about that. Like it makes sense, but I never can figure out why they have to be so dang expensive, like 20 bucks for a little stamped piece of metal seems a little excessive to me, but well, hopefully it's machined and not stamped, but okay. Machined. <laughs> Either way. But I, well, yeah, the, just to talk about those for a second. I mean, they are, those are designed to fail actually, but that's designed to, one mainly to save your frame. I mean, a rear derailleur hanger might cost thirty bucks, but that's certainly cheaper than a new rear triangle. That's you- what they want you to think of, right? <laughs> They're like, "Would you rather pay thirty bucks, or would you rather pay a thousand? And it's like, "No, I would rather pay five dollars." Which still, right, you make plenty of margin on that. Well, again, if there were more, this goes back to something we we're talking about at the beginning of the episode. If if you did have more coordination between the brands, I guess. And you could say like, all right, we're going to have five different derailleur hangers, right? That's it. Like everybody, you can choose whichever five of these you want, but there's only five of them and (laughs) make it work, you know, design your frame so it can accept one of these five derailleur hangers. Like that would be awesome for the consumer. But again, that's uh, probably not going to (laughs) happen. But, you know, instead these companies like, wheels manufacturing or problem solvers or whoever, they have to make, you know, 300 different derailleur hangers. And when you're only making a handful of each one, but all the tooling costs that go into it, that's why the price goes up. And that, and that's what we call amortization. <laughs> I think we probably brought that up again, but that's something I wanted to mention about uh, dirt bikes. I forgot to say that earlier. Part of the reason you know, dirt bikes don't cost fifteen thousand dollars. You know, they cost seven or eight. Is because they largely use they you know they use the same engine, the same frame, uh, the same suspension. Which a lot of times, the same company that's making the bike itself is also making the suspension. So that's a way for them to cut costs. But they use these frames for years. I mean, that's why you can you know you can go buy a brand new KTM and. A lot of the parts are going to be interchangeable with a KTM from 15 years ago. You you can't really say the same about a lot of things on a bike these days, and that's because you know they're trying to recoup that tooling cost. And again, that's amortization at work. Yeah, and I I think it makes sense too for bikes. I mean, I'm just using that as a sort of a flip example, but yeah, I mean, like a derailleur hanger, they don't 
they got their tools set up. They're going to, you know, punch a bunch out, but they don't know how many of those they're going to need. And it costs them money to just have them sitting around for years. Yeah. I mean, for years, like you have this bike that's seven, eight years old and then you're like, Oh, Hey, Santa Cruz, by the way, can I get a derailleur hanger for this thing? And they're like, we stopped making that bike, you know, five years ago. Like we've got some in the inventory, but we're not making these forever for you. You know, um, we can't just spin the factory back up to like make, 10 more of these derailleur hangers <laughs> for so, the eight people who have yeah. this bike. Yeah. So there's definitely costs to them holding it for a long time. And yeah, I get all that. Again, it comes back to costs and you know, nobody's, I haven't seen any financials of a bike company, but I doubt you're going to find, you know, like a line item where it's like, Holy cow, they make all their money off derailleur hangers. You know? <laughs> like, I know there's no gotcha line items on their financial statements. Okay. So we talked about all these myths and sort of the things that people think the bike industries are doing to sell their products that maybe they're not doing. But what are some methods that could actually be effective for bike companies to use to sell their products? What are the things that they should be doing? Well, of course, you could just make good products in the first place, right, Jeff? Yeah. I mean, that's... that. It's definitely a good start with any company is to meet a demand and, you know, mountain bikers want good quality bikes that are fun to ride and are going to be durable and last a long time. We keep using them as an example that's not on purpose at all, but Santa Cruz, you know, is probably one of the hottest mountain bike brands on the market right now. A lot of people are tired of hearing about Santa Cruz even, but that company does tend to make really good products and they are relatively, you know, reasonably priced even compared to other brands. And so, yeah, people are going to buy those bikes and you can continue to buy them as long as they are making good products and the pricing is reasonable. What about some other ways? What about marketing? What kind of, what kind of marketing is effective? You know, if, I guess my question to you, Aaron, is like, if you were running a bike company, where would you put your money to actually, you know, let people know about your brand and your product? A big part of mountain bike marketing is selling the lifestyle. And uh, I think mountain biking for a lot of us is a lifestyle. You know, it tends to be above and beyond a hobby for, for many of us. And that can, you know, that can be through various ways. You can have sponsorships, you can events, videos, ads, all that stuff helps to build a brand. And it kind of depends on what you're going after. You know, a company like, Specialize is going to spend a whole lot on sponsorship and they're going to sponsor the best racers in the world because they want to be known as the fastest bikes in the world, right? Like that's what they care about. Yeah. Then you have a brand like Yeti and I would say even more than like Santa Cruz, they figure out how to sell a lifestyle. I mean, they even call Yeti owners the tribe. I mean, and part of the reason, you know, people buy Yetis is because they're buying into that certain image. You know, they're buying into the tribe. They want to be a part of the tribe. And that's why Yeti can charge a premium above even other premium brands. You know, if you're comparing a similar Yeti to another premium brand that we've talked about tons, Santa Cruz, you know, you're talking about a Yeti is a few hundred dollars more for a very similar bike. At least. At least, right. So, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. You know, people make these decisions all the time, like Apple versus Android. You know, that's, you have your fanboys on both sides. Uh, Ford versus Chevy, Nike versus Adidas, SRAM versus Shimano, RockShox versus Fox. You know, like it or not, you know, part of the reason we choose things, we choose the things that we buy. It's not rational. It's, it's emotional. We think our possessions, they say something about us to the rest of the world. It's a signal to everyone else. Like, I'm a RockShox guy or like, you know, I, I'm, I'm an Android guy or whatever it is. Yeah. And we see this especially more so with the consumer direct brands because um, really that's all they have to go on. You know, you can't walk into a shop and, you know, touch their bikes or see them necessarily. And a lot of these two are new brands. So they're starting at zero. Nobody's ever heard of them. Uh, so marketing has to play a big role in that. Right, Aaron? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you take a brand like YT, they've positioned themselves as a party brand. Of course, they're spending a lot on sponsorship now with Aaron Gwynn and Nico Mullally, and that's been very effective because you know Aaron Gwynn's a fast dude on the planet, and he won the World Cup overall this year. But you know, their overall image is of one of like just. I think one of their slogans is like "Good times." Like, 
it's just like they're, you know, they're trying to give the middle finger to the rest of the industry. You know, they're the cool kid at the party. It may be so, but you know what? They're still trying to sell bikes. That's why they're in business. Yes, these are all businesses at the end of the day, for sure. Another thing that bike companies use is they have, you know, really strong dealer networks. And if you think about it, the dealers are the ones who really are closing the sales. You know, you can see a million ads for a specialized or a Trek bike, or, you know, you can read all these things about how awesome electric bikes are. But at the end of the day, the person who actually sells that bike is, you know, it's not the magazine, it's not the website, it's, you know, a dealer in a shop, you know, it's a salesperson. And, you know, for evidence of that, you know, we're, we're told because of the internet that, that's kind of an old model and it doesn't really matter anymore. And you can have a bike company that's completely online. But I mean, just look at how effective these sales people are. A lot of us, almost everybody knows somebody who bought a bike basically because the sales guy talked them into it, you know, like they're riding the wrong size or they got a too much bike for them or not enough bike. Um, and that's because the salesperson was like, I got to sell this bike to somebody. And this guy's pretty <laughs> close. He's, he's, kind of in the you know right size for this or you know it's sort of the style of riding he's into like i'm gonna put a little extra pressure on him um and again you know there's there's no good guys and bad guys here but there's just a lot of different places where i guess you can be influenced in the market and all of those are working in concert really you know i mean it, it all starts with the the marketing and the branding and the overall, you know, your experience, like if you know somebody who owns a bike of a certain brand and you heard that they had a good experience, then, you know, word of mouth helps. But at the end of the day, there's just a lot of different levers that the bike companies can pull. And there's not any one of them that's going to necessarily be enough uh, to make their business a viable business. Well, we've run out of time here. There's a lot to say about the bike industry. Hopefully we've covered the important parts if you're interested in learning more about the bike industry or getting some ideas about how bikes are sold or why they're so expensive, be sure to check single tracks and use the search bar at the top right side of the page where you can find pretty much anything. The answers to all of your questions, mountain bike related. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.